Today we are embarking on a brand new series entitled Elijah, A Man Like Us. And it's taken from the book of James specifically where it says Elijah was a righteous man who prayed that it would not rain for three and a half years. And God didn't rain for three and a half years. Now taking that same prayer, I I just have to say this in all seriousness. uh, Whoever here is righteous in praying that it would continue to snow, please stop. (laughs) Just please. (laughs) Uh, as we, you know, it, it's, it's nice to have some snow. I am very thankful that you're here. But if you're praying for snow, please stop, just for the, for the sake of us all. <laughs> uh, but we are in our series on Elijah, and uh, we're going to be going through this series for the next 10 weeks. And I can't tell you how excited I am about this series as we study this amazing man of God and what God did through him. As we're going to be looking at these books, and I would encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles if you have one, hopefully you do, to the book of 1 Kings. That's in the Old Testament. Um, It's what we call one of the pieces of historical literature within Scripture. Um, Different. We have to understand as we go to Scripture that there are different uh, genres even in Scripture. And this is a category of the history of Israel. And we're looking at this man who appears on the scene in a very dark time in history. Uh, You might have remember being in high school and reading the Charles Dickens classic, uh, Tale of Two Cities, and it starts off with a very famous line, It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. And what we have during Elijah's time is exactly that. It was the worst of times, as we are going to see how bad this nation had become, how morally bankrupt, how they had completely turned their back on God after everything that God had done, after all the mercies that he had showed, and they totally turned their back on God and embraced this continually and habitually horrible false religion called Baalism. And Elijah comes up on the scene, and this is where it becomes the best of times, because when, the dark, when it seems darkest, when there's no hope, is when God sends his people to shine a light in the dark place. And it's the best of times, because we can look at individuals such as Elijah and draw encouragement as we are in our places where it seems dark, at our workplaces, in our families, in our society, in our schools. And we want to be a light shining in the dark place. And it might be that God is calling us to be like Elijah and go speak against it, calling people to repentance and the hope and the prayer that they turn and embrace the one true God revealed in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So we are going to be going through this series in the next, uh, ten, for the next 10 weeks and also in our small groups as we are... Uh, You'll be studying in your small group the week before we get into the sermon. So I would encourage you, if you've not been in a small group yet, to sign up. That's another thing you can do for the Friendship Registry. Just take a few moments and sign in and look for a group. If you don't have a night that's in there that's provided for you, just sign a time that you are available, and we'll try to cater to that. Uh, But we are jumping right into this series, and we're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 16. Um, as we are getting a little bit of a background into Elijah's life, and then jumping into the first part of chapter 17. So hopefully you're with me in 1 Kings 16, 29, and then 17. And it's our custom here uh, to stand for the, re- for the reading of God's Word. So if you're new here, uh, just stand, and we will read the Word of God. I will read it, and then we will pray. So 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29, we'll be reading, reading all the way through the beginning of chapter 17. As the Holy Spirit writes by the divine narrator, in the thirty-eighth, excuse me, in the thirty-eighth year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel and Samaria twenty-two years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. 
and, is, and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel, or Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, I thank you that we can come to you in to hear your word preached, as you have preserved your word for our benefit, that we might understand what it means to walk with you and how we might be Elijah's in our own day. Lord, I pray that you guide my words. May it be your words that are spoken, not mine, and any failings, Lord, forgive me of. But may you challenge each one of us to walk closer with you in holiness and learn what it means and how we can be like your servant Elijah to speak against our very evil world that your name might be praised as people come in repentance to you. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You can follow along with me in your notes as we go through this. There are a great deal of background. And before we embark on any biography, we need to get the lay of the land. Uh, just like we can't understand Abraham Lincoln unless we understood what was going on in, the, in our country or Martin Luther King Jr. as the civil rights movement, we need to understand what was going on in the time and get a brief overview of uh, the culture and the history of the people. And for many of us in the 21st century, this isn't easy. Uh, for especially for those who, if you've been in church or you're new to church, this can be a little bit overwhelming to understand what's going on in this history and these names and these foreign places and these foreign customs. So we're going to go back in time a little bit to get an idea what's going on. And a very brief history. We have God calling a man to himself named Abraham. I'm going to start at the very, very beginning. Abraham was given a promise that God would bless the entire world through him. He would also give him a land. And this promise carried on through his descendants. You had Abraham, and it went through the child of promise, which was Isaac. Isaac had, a, had two sons, but one of them was designated to be another child of promise, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, which we call the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, and we know that these 12 men... Uh, were living in the land of Canaan at the time, and they went into Egypt when there was a famine in the land under Pharaoh. That's where we get the story of Joseph. Joseph and his amazing technicolor dream coat, okay, if you're familiar with the musical, uh, it's part of the biblical story, uh, at least reference to it. And these 12 men, their families grew in the period of time that they're in Egypt, what uh, became known as the 12 tribes. And at the end of 400 plus years, God delivered the nation under Moses, to go into this promised land. And as they were getting ready to go into the promised land, uh, they, they, uh, they didn't enter in because they were afraid of the people in the land. They didn't enter in because of unbelief. So God judged them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the period of time of the unbelieving generation that didn't take God by faith to enter into this land died. Is everyone with me so far? Sorry if I feel a little bit overwhelming, uh, but there's a lot of, of things here, a lot of background that brings out the story. So after the end of 40 years, Moses dies, and he hands off the baton to one Joshua, which we just read about, Joshua the son of Nun. And he leads the Israelites to take the promised land, and they settle there. Well, after they settle in the land, 
we enter in from the book of Joshua to the book of Judges, where these judges are raised up after Joshua dies to watch over and kind of guard the people and lead them to judge Israel. We have a series of judges, and the last judge is by the name of Samuel, the prophet Samuel. You're familiar with First and Second Samuel. Samuel is the last of the judges, and then he hands the batad off. Actually, he anoints the very first king. He begins the monarchy, and it's under King Saul is where it begins. King Saul ends up passing the baton to King David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the great King David. And then David passes it on to his son Solomon, who's known as the wisest man to ever have lived. Now Solomon, though the wisest man to ever have lived, had his own blind spots. And one of them was is that he loved many foreign women. And God judged him for that and said that he was going to divide his kingdom, but not during his reign, under his son Rehoboam. All right? Remember, you have to stick with these names. They're hard to remember, I know. But under Rehoboam, Rehoboam becomes king. And at the beginning of his reign, uh, they have the, the 12 tribes assemble. And they come to him and they said, are you going to rule us like your father? I mean, Solomon was a very wealthy man. He demanded a lot of tribute. And one of the leaders became a, a spokesman for the 12 tribes by the name of Jeroboam. And they confront Rehoboam and they said, are you going to lead us like your father or are you going to be more gentle? He says, give me three days. He talks to the older counselors. The counselors say, be gentle or with them. They'll serve you all the days of your life. And then he, he consults his young buddies. And his young buddies say to him, tell him, you know what, you think my dad was bad? I'm going to be worse. I'm going to bring it. So that's what he does. And the nation, uh, Jeroboam, stands up and he goes, if you're going to be that way, fine. We're seceding from the union. And that's what we have to think about. It. These 12 tribes, these 12 clans, were almost like states, in a word. They had their own designated piece of land. So what they decide to do is to secede, in essence, from the, the rest of the kingdom. So it's divided, just like our own civil war here in the United States of America. And Rehoboam then gathers an army, and he says... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to preserve this union. And as he gets the army ready to go, God speaks to him and says, this is from me. You're not to fight in this battle. So the nation becomes divided. And we have this northern kingdom, which becomes known as the kingdom of Israel. Now, this is a little hard to understand because the entire nation is still seen as called Israel, these 12 tribes. But now these 10 tribes are also called the kingdom of Israel. Not the nation, but the kingdom of Israel. While the southern kingdom is called the kingdom of Judah. Now these 10 northern tribes set up a capital in the town of Samaria. And the southern tribes have their capital that stays in Jerusalem. Now these kings start off. This Jeroboam, the guy who was the spokesman against Solomon, against Rehoboam, he becomes the first king in the land. And he's fearful because he says, you know what? The temple, which is our identity, is in the southern kingdom. How can I stop the people from going to the kingdom? Because the temple, if they keep going, the kingdom will be united again. And they're going to leave me, and I'll be killed. So what do I do? He comes up with an alternative, entire, an entirely uh, alternative worship system. And he erects, this is the, the bane of Israel's existence, he makes these golden calves, and he sets them up in two places. And he says, Israel, these are your gods that delivered you out of the land of Egypt. So the people didn't go to the temple any longer. They went there. And all the kings after Jeroboam in the kingdom of Israel are bad. When you read in the book of 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles, which is more of a spiritual look at 1 and 2 Kings, you will see the, the phrase, a judgment by the divine narrator saying, evaluating the king's reign, it says, and he walked in the sins of Jeroboam son of Nebat, which he caused Israel to commit. And these kings repeatedly get that judgment upon them in the northern kingdom. So in the northern kingdom, all the kings are bad. 
Now, in the southern kingdom, the kings are they're spotty. There's some good. There's some bad. Uh, you've heard of names such as Jehoshaphat or Joash or Josiah. These are some of the highlights. Hezekiah. These are in the southern kingdom. And these guys remain, many of them remain good. They go up and down. So a good way to remember it is, is the north is bad and the sometimes not so bad. That's how I try to remember that. So what happens is, is this, this king raises up, King Omri. And he, he starts really, I mean, he's committing sin, and he has this son. I mean, he's leading the nation astray continually because every one of them, after Jeroboam set up these calves, started to go down this treacherous, I mean, stairway of disobedience. And it gets to Ahab, who's the king that we just read about. And he is one bad guy. I mean, he is a bad king, the most wicked of the wicked. He is evil. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to set it up a little bit more, getting into who he is and examining what happened with him. Because it says in the text in 1 Kings 16.30, we just read that he did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And look at verse 31. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, that first king in their history, it's a judgment on him, the son of Nebat, which was bad enough, but he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. So what we're going to do now is what I'd like to do is examine how did they get to where they were. I mean, I've given you some details about it, but we need to examine it because sometimes it's hard for us to discern and understand how these steps of disobedience affected the culture. I mean, look at our own. Some of you grew up in, in, a, in your younger years that are a little bit more seasoned saints. You remember what it was like going to church on Sunday morning and how almost everybody did and, and how everybody dressed and how everybody spoke. And then it started to change. And you want to know why. What happened? There were things that happened in the culture and in the world. And here we can see that within this passage today. And what I'd like us to do, first of all, is examine the perversions that invaded this culture. What are the perversions that changed and influenced this nation to go bad? We already saw that the divine split happened as a judgment of God, but they themselves not only invented this nagging and nasty religion that Jeroboam had put in place, but they embraced this God called Baal. All right? Baal. And this is the, the nagging and nasty religion uh, that they had become a part of. Now, we don't know much about Baal. We don't talk about him a whole lot, but he appears... And, and just different uh, places without the scripture. So it's good to kind of get an idea who he is. Baal, it's a Semitic word, and it means Lord, Master, or Owner. And he was the chief God worshipped by the Canaanites, the people in the land, the time of Israel's entrance into the land when they came to the promised land. Now, the head of the Canaanite pantheon of gods was called El. Now, think of the Roman gods and goddesses, the Greek gods and goddesses, or the Egyptian gods and goddesses. They have these great pantheon of gods. Well, Baal is the chief god of the land, and he, excuse me, was the god of fertility in all aspects of life. Human, animal, and uh, vegetable. Production and prosperity were completely dependent upon him. And the Ras Shamra text, which is an important archaeological find, gives us more background into Baal than we ever, ever could... That's where our main source comes from. We don't have one exact text. They didn't have their own Bible that we can look to. And it seemed that this deity was different in different locations. They would emphasize different things about him. But we know that he was the God who has the power over rain, wind, clouds, and therefore fertility. Baal was also worshipped as the weather god, the god of storm, of rain, and good crops. And as you can see, that's huge in this background of what we're talking about when Elijah says, 
It's not going to rain for three and a half, except by my word in the next several years. And worship was localized so that each area worshipped its own Baal. You had Baal creaming, like Baal Mion or Baal Hermon. It was indicative of the area. Here we would say Baal Aurora or Baal Yorkville or Baal North Aurora. Each localized area was considered to have its own God that protected that geographical area. And we see that throughout the Old Testament. There are times where the Israelites would have battles against them and the nations that would fight against them would say, hey, we can't fight them in the hills. Their God's the God of the hills. Our God's the God of the plain. So let's take them here. Or their God is this God. And so they had these very strange understanding of things. So here, Baal, though, is the God of the storm, clouds, fertility. And his, his followers engaged in a variety of deviant sexual practices. I mean, Anything that you can think of that's in our, our press today, they did. I did research on Baalism, and I have to say, I can't even say publicly what they engaged in in order to satisfy the requirement of the land. See, what they would do is they would engage in this activity, and then Baal would be pleased with this activity, and then cause it to rain, and cause the crops to grow, and cause the water to, the, the, all, you know, the, the rain to fall, and all of these different things. So it was despicable uh, what was going on. So it was this nagging and nasty religion. And when the Israelites took over the promised land, they were to run all these people out, but they didn't. So it grew up and it persisted. And then the people started embracing it. They didn't work separate from the world. They started engaging or becoming a part of this pagan worship. Now I did talk about, not only did they have this nagging and nasty religion, but they had these number of wicked rulers. I already talked about that. They had a number of wicked rulers. And we know as the ruler goes, usually so does the nation. So does the nation. And that's in any country. If, if the ruler is wicked, the people have a tendency to follow suit. Now, I'm not, I'm not politicking, but I do want to call attention to one very important thing I remember seeing and hearing about, which was with President Clinton when he had his scandal. I don't need to elaborate on the details. But when he was before Congress and he said, give me the definition of is. Do you remember that? Yep. And it influenced an entire generation of young people on what was considered sexually appropriate and, and then and now. And we see as, as the ruler goes, so goes the nation. And in the nation of Israel, they were already wicked. And the nation followed the example of its leaders. So they had a number of wicked rulers. Started off bad. The template from the beginning, Jeroboam started off worshiping golden calves. So they had no place to go but down. And it was, it was a horrible time. So we see, we get a, a good lay of the land. We get a good uh, picture of what was going on. And then Elijah appears on the scene. Oh, God, thank God for Elijah. I mean, I, 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 I love Elijah. I thank God for Elijah. Uh, he, he is one of my heroes of the faith. I, 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 I admire him so much that I named my son after him in the prayer that he would somehow be like Elijah. But Elijah shows up in first. Kings chapter 17, verse 1. But let me backtrack one more thing. We see, uh, I want to examine a little bit more Ahab and what he, he did. Uh, he sh- not only married in, he, he not only walked in the sins of Jeroboam and considered it light, but look back at the text. He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. So he took for his wife, I, I forgot to ex- talk about Jezebel. Jezebel is uh, from the, a kingdom to the north. It's a political alliance. And her father became king after murdering his brothers. He was a tyrant. 
His name literally means, I'm with Baal. I'm friends with Baal. Not only is he a murderous tyrant that killed his brothers in order to get to the throne, after having the throne, he wielded an iron hand on it, and he became a vigorous proponent and zealous missionary for Baalism. And he taught his daughter, I'm sure from the time she was a little kid, in Baalism. So when she marries, she marries Ahab, the, I read one author, he said it was like she backed up the truck and had baggage bags and bales. And she unloaded them in the palace. I mean, she moved in, and she became such a persecutor of God's people, not just a proponent of Baal, but so against the God of Israel that she went to issue a death warrant for God's prophets. We're going to learn about in the next several weeks. I mean, she hated them, and she uh, got Ahab to build a great palace or uh, temple for Baal, where his servants were. And, and then the opposite side was these priests of Asherah, and these Asherah poles. Asherah is a little bit different. It was, Asherah was considered a consort or wife of Baal. And these idols that would be put up of her would have the appropriate female parts to Baal's male parts. It's the only way I know how to put it. And it, uh, her priest would engage, again, in all types of sexual morality. So she is promoting this tolerance in the land. Here's, I like how one author, David Roper, he says this, talks in his assessment of Baal and Jezebel. He says, In some instances, the priests of Baal perform the rituals vicariously as representatives of the people, but at other times the people themselves shared in the ritual participating in all the lusty capers of the priesthood. Jezebel, like an erstwhile Madonna, presided over this cultural revolution, freeing God's children from the moral inhibitions and sexual hang-ups, broadening their minds, stretching their consciences, and justifying every intolerable act in the name of tolerance. Does that not like sound like today? And what we have in our own culture, what we allow in our own homes, what we see being put on our televisions, the culture was bad. And the Bible even judges him for his marriage. He married, the wrong, I mean, he married definitely the wrong woman. Verse 32, he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. So he constructed. I mean, he's got a building program and everything. And Ahab made an Asherah, the pole I just mentioned. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. It's a huge judgment. He said they were bad, but he's the worst. In his days, Hiel of Bethel, or Bethel built, Jer- uh, built Jericho. Now, this is an addendum to the text. This is referring to Joshua after they had marched around the walls of Jericho and they blew the trumpets and the, and the walls came and tumbling down. Remember that story? And he, Joshua had prophesied that the next person to build Jericho would do so at the detriment of the, uh, the loss of life of their own son. And the text is pointing back to that to, to show us that God's word hangs true. No matter what happens, no matter how much time passes, God's word will remain true and God will bring it to pass. So it's a little divine inclusive, something that we can see to be reminded of, to draw encouragement of what's about to happen on the scene. And that's why we read in verse 1 of chapter 17, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So now we're, we're, Elijah appears on the scene. We need to examine Elijah. So I'm going to briefly go over his background. We need to look at this person whom God has called. This person whom God has called to get an idea. First of all, his name. His name literally means Yahweh is my God. Yahweh is how they would say it. Uh, we called it the Tetragrammaton. 
Uh, this name that we consist in letters, it doesn't even have an, uh, vowels in it. And the ancient Jews wouldn't even write the name because it was so holy. And they would come upon it in the text. They would actually go and bathe and then come back and put on their clothes and continue on. Even to this day, you can see this. If you ever read someone who's Jewish and their writings about God, they'll have the name God, G, and they'll have a dash, D. They won't even write the entire name of God because they think it's, it's too holy to even write. So we see, though, within biblical texts in the past that people would receive names that were indicative of the circumstances surrounding their birth, like Isaac, which means laughter, or Jacob, because he was grabbing his brother's heel, right, when he was born, he was a twin, and he comes out grabbing his, his uh, brother's heel, so they called him Jacob, which means one who grasped the heel, or deceiver. And we also see other names that people give when, uh, I, I think of uh, after the Ark of the Covenant had been taken into captivity, and uh, when one of the, the two priests were ki- killed, the, the wife of one of the priests, she went into labor and had a baby, and named him, ben, uh, named him Ichabod, which literally means the glory has departed. So we have these names that mean something, that have a significance. So for here, he's given a name that means Yahweh is my God. In the middle of this terrible, difficult time, he shows up saying, Yahweh is my God. He is a statement, even by his name. So we see that from his name. We also see his neighborhood. He's from, we see that he was a Tishbite. Tishbite, which is from Tishbe and Gilead. It's a backwoods sort of hill country. I, I hate to draw contemporary comparisons in our country, but I would look at it at the Appalachians. He's a mountain man. And he shows up wearing, I mean, he's, he's got a, a pretty interesting dress that he is, he's got on here. It says that he shows up dressed in a garment of hair and a leather belt. He just shows up. And he's, he's not greatly dressed. He doesn't have a great education. He's a backwoods kind of guy. So he's, he shows up. And we have his name, we have his neighborhood, and then we have his nature. And this is the greatest, probably single thing that I think endears Elijah to us. And we learn from James chapter 5 that he has a nature just like us. He wasn't a superhero. He wasn't blessed with all of this great intelligence. Or he wasn't a great genius. He wasn't a great natural orator. He, he didn't have all of these backgrounds or a great birth or anything like that. He's just like us. Aaron Copeland, who is a composer of the 20th century, he decided to create some music called Fanfare for the Common Man, which was just going around America and composing music and hearing it from different places. And this music represents America and captures the essence of it. Elijah captures the essence of who we are. He's a man just like us. So he shows up and he gives a proclamation. He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Except by my word. Now, what, what can we learn about Elijah from this proclamation that he makes? First of all, we see that this proclamation shows a great deal of courage. Can you imagine just showing up and speaking against the king? Had all these building pro- programs. He'd married royalty. He is the, the leader of the entire land. And you just show up and you say, by the way, I'm going to confront you. You knew that he was against your people. You knew that he had issued some terrible proclamations to kill your own people. And to show up and speak against that, it shows just great courage. And to better understand this, we have to examine a few things here. We have to see the preface that allows for such authority. The preface that allows for such authority. What I mean by that is this. We need to look at what he's saying. What he understood. Where does he get this courage from? Where is the well of, or the source of his courage? 
Look at the text. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. He's not a God that's dead. He's the living God. He is eternally alive. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. He doesn't come to Ahab for his own benefit. He, doesn't, he confronts them because that's what God has called him to do. He had a boldness because of who he stood for and with. I love it when I hear of individuals who take such stands who don't care one cent what the world says, but says, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. They look to the Word of God and said, I don't care what you do to me. I'm not going to change. Because God has called me to do this. God has saved me. God has transformed me. And He has called me to this task. So we can see that He had an understanding of who the God of Israel was. And where did that authority come from? Well, we need to get some particulars here. We need to get uh, some particulars regarding this act of divine sovereignty. What I mean by that is this. This was prophesied. This drought had been prophesied generations before. The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 11, verses 16 through 17. The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28, verse 15. And the book of 1 Kings, chapter, uh, actually, uh, under the reign of Solomon when he was praying for the dedication of the temple. And, God say, and, and they all say the same thing. When your people turn from you and you cause drought or famine throughout the land, cause them to turn back. So we see that he was a student of Scripture. And he shows up making this proclamation. He is standing, in essence, on the Word of God. This wasn't his own thing. He was standing on the Word of God. That's his source of authority. This is our source of authority. Is the Bible, the Word of God. We have to understand it. We have to seek to apply it. To understand what it says in its original context. What God desires it to, how how we are to apply it. As as some have said, there is one interpretation, but many applications. We must learn how to wield this book accurately. Knowing how to study it, to go through it, to process it. And how to apply it to our lives. And what... Elijah is doing right now is he is taking a stand on the word of God and what God has already declared speaking against this pagan people and the judgment that God has already declared. So we see these particulars that he, uh, he is saying that in essence all of these things are happening because you have turned from the Lord. He wasn't coming on his own but was coming at Ahab with the full authority of the word of God. And we have to ask ourselves, this is just a good setup for the rest of the series, but we have to ask ourselves a question. What is the purpose For such activity. Why did God have him do this? And what can we learn from that today? In interpreting Elijah, we have to look at it a little bit different. We just came off from studying the book of Titus. Titus is very succinct. It's very clear. It's uh, it's a lot easier to determine and understand the meaning that is in the text. This is a little different. It's what we call a narrative. It's a story. So we have to work a little harder to see what God is trying to show us and how this applies to us today. But we can see that there was a purpose for his, this activity, this judgment. It was to expose their idolatry and, so that they might embrace the one true God. That's not in your notes, but you can write that down. It was so that it might be exposed to show what it is. When God brings judgment in our life and we feel the hand of God, He's doing it to expose our own idols. It's painful. It is extremely painful, but God needs to do that to show us, to bring it up that we might turn away from it, embrace Him. He shows us the idols in our heart in sometimes very painful ways. And all of us understand what that means. When we're going through a dark night of the soul, when we feel God testing us, it's like we're on the anvil 
And God just continues to hammer us because he's shaping us, shaping us and directing us. And sometimes we say, we don't want to be on the anvil anymore. And God says, no, I'm going to put you on the anvil. I'm going to shape you in who I want you to be. And it's going to be painful. But I'm doing it for your benefit and your blessing, not to hurt you. So his purpose was to expose their idolatry so they might embrace, turn back to the one true God. Now, as we go over the next several weeks, I hope that we can be like Elijah. And if we are to be Elijah's in our time, we need to find out what the prerequisites that we need to have, we must have, to pursue this type of ministry. What are the prerequisites? What do we need to have to be like Elijah? Does it mean that we need to dress in animals' hair cloaks with, with wrong belts? Do we need to do that? That's not what the text is referring to. We, obviously not. Here are, th- here are four things that I think we need to have. And this isn't in your notes. But I would encourage you to write these down. First of all, we need to be prayed up. James chapter 5, verse 17 through 18. talks about Elijah prayed. He was a man with a nature just like ours. And he prayed that it would not rain. And God answered his prayer. Are we spending time in prayer? I'm so thankful that we had this the past month, uh, the month of January, we had a, a prayer month. But it's, it's not just one month. It's the purpose is to get us started off on the right foot, is to become people of prayer. I'm asking God to change me in this area. I know the own battles, my own prayer life that I have. And I, I get prideful when I am praying well, and I think everything's going well, then I realize that I'm not depending on the Lord, I'm depending on my own strength. I'm asking God to simply show me and to continue to pray according to His will and according to His word and let Him do what He wants to do in our midst, that He might receive glory. And then believe in faith that He's going to do it. I think that's the hardest thing. It's easy to pour out our requests, give our lists, but it's a lot harder to pray in faith. As Pastor Andrew and I were talking, he was mentioning, I'm going to bring this out. I didn't mean to draw him out. It's a good thing. But he was saying, you know, I find that when I'm most ineffective in prayer that something's wrong in my own life. There's a sin. There's something that's come up. Paraphrasing. I'm not giving his entire words, but it was a good reminder to me. Are we letting a sin creep in that is quenching our prayer life? Are we giving the proper time to God and His Word to commune with our Master? I I really try to commit myself back to this. And you know what? I find out when I do, the divine resource is there. I think I don't have the strength to go on. I'm tired. And then I spend time with God and I find that I wake up. I have this energy that I know not where it came from. It, it, all these other ideas, all of the strength, and it's because of we have to go. It's because we all have to go to our Creator to commune with Him, to receive that divine guidance, communion that we are made for. So are we, being, are we prayed up? The second thing is this. We need to be cleaned up. Cleaned up. James chapter 5, that same says that, right, uh, that Elijah was a righteous man. didn't say he was a perfect man, but it said he was a righteous man. It means we need, if we know that there's any identifiable sin in our life that we are tolerating, sin, habit, or thing that is keeping us from pursuing the life that God wants, we need to forsake it. And that's not an easy process for any of us, for pastors, for elders, for, for anybody who worships the Lord. We all have to say, God, purify me. I know in my own life I have this. And I say, God, clean me up. Help me to be more like you. I feel so worldly. I don't feel holy. And I know that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. I want to be holy, Lord. I want to be righteous before you, not to promote myself, but that I can be of use in your hand, that you might clean me out, that I can be a, a pure vessel for the Master's use. And I hope that's all of our prayers, that we might all be that way. 
And not only do we need to be cleaned up, but we need to be studied up. I think it's very important to see that Elijah, when he said, except by my word, he wasn't speaking of his, by his own authority, but speaking according to the authority of the word of God. Speaking according to the authority of the word of God. And he wouldn't have known that unless he was studied up. Do we know the word of God? Some of us think we, we get the spirit, we think the spirit is telling us something, and it's completely antithetical to the word of God. I would encourage you, if it's not rooted and anchored in the text, you, I mean, the scripture says we need to test every spirit to see if it's from God. We have to go back continually and submit our thoughts, our actions, everything, place it under the authority of the Word of God to judge it. And we can't do that if we don't spend time knowing it. And I'm astonished at how many Christians have been in churches for sometimes 40, 50 years and still don't know their Bible. Shame on us. Shame on us. I mean, we are woefully negligent and we just listen to the most popular Bible teacher. And let them become our authority. When we do that at all times, when we are not reading it for ourselves, and we're not studying in a group of people, we're just listening to one teacher all the time, and I would encourage you to evaluate what I say according to Scripture, then we are no different than those who have popes and cardinals interpreting the Word of God to them. We're no different. We are passing the buck, as, as it were. We're saying that I don't need to know. They've already done it for me. That's not right. Study to show yourself. Are we doing that? Are you spending time in the Word of God? Now, I don't want to simply put an, uh, an avalanche of water so you're so overwhelmed. Take a little bit at a time. Take baby steps. Start small. Read the book of James. Read Elijah. Read, or not the book of Elijah. Read the book of 1 Kings. Read the book of 1 Kings, but read it. Ask questions. Be in a small group. Learn how to interpret it and study it rightly. There's some great prompts in the study guide that we have put together that helps you interpret it and see it for yourselves, placing you within the text that you can learn how to study it for yourself. I would encourage you to do that. So we need to be prayed up, cleaned up, studied up. And if we do all those things, the natural result is we get stirred up. We get stirred up. We get a holy, I, call, I like to call this a holy discontent where we yearn for God to do something. You know, I've, I've spent time in my, my years uh, studying the concept of revival, where God's people turn. Because God's people, we, and we all know this, we can have a tendency to let sin build up. Just like, we let, uh, we, like you let your garbage build up and you're too lazy to take it to the curb. You ever had that? And you wait for the next week? Uh, I've, I've been guilty of that. We let sin build up in our lives. We're not continually confessing our sin, taking it to the curb in confession. And letting God take it away. And we let our zeal for the Lord wane. Ask God to revive our hearts. To turn our hearts back to Himself. That we might be Elijah's in our place. With the people that He has placed us with. So that God might receive great glory. That's my prayer in this series. Is that we might all draw encouragement. That we might see a bit of ourselves in Elijah. And be able to stand in our generation. In the place that God has placed us to be the one through whom revival will be awakened as God is working through us as pure vessels to speak to the people that we come in contact with, that they might share the joy that we have by being a beneficiary of what Christ has done on the cross as they repent of their sins, embrace Him in the free gift that God has made available to us as we place our faith in Him. Father, we do thank You that You gave Your Son for our sin. We ask You to bless this time that Your name 
might receive glory, that we might be drawn closer to you, and your name might be worshipped in a very amazing and phenomenal way. Guard our hearts. Help us to do business with you, confessing any sin that you bring to remembrance. We might receive forgiveness because of what you have done on our behalf. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.